You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Downs Podcast. It's super exciting for me to be able to chat with a friend who is about to embark on something that I have participated in myself. And I know like the tension and the anxiety he's got right now. I know the joy and the triumph that he's got right now. And I actually want to talk about the topic of the book, but I want to talk about him and uh, and the process too. So please welcome to the podcast, Nolan Gray. His new book is called Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. Nolan's a longtime writer with Strong Towns. You see him on Twitter. You see him all over. If you're involved in this conversation all, you've run into Nolan. This is your first book. Nolan, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk about it. You have this book coming out in like three weeks now? Yeah, June June twenty first. Right, June twenty first. Actually, by the time this publishes, it will be very it will be much closer because we're going to run this in a couple of weeks. But you and I are talking here right before Memorial Day weekend. How you feeling? Talk <laughs> a little bit about the process of writing this. I'm author geeking out on you now. You're a great writer. You're a prolific writer. This book is well written. It's fun. It's an easy read, but it's good. You know, it doesn't leave out stuff like it's it's deep. Are you nervous now? You feeling it? You doing okay? Now I find whenever I encounter another author, I just, I, you know, we can talk about this for hours, right? Yeah. As you know, because it's a full-time job for, for really at least two years writing a book. I was blessed in a certain sense that, you know, I had a six-month fellowship with the Mercatus Center. Uh, they helped make the book possible. Great people. You know, Emily Hamilton, Slim Firth, they helped make the book possible. So I had the six-month window in DC to write the book. And I'm thinking, oh no, DC is such a fun city. I'm going to be going, you know, having drinks with friends and and going to museums. And there's no way I'm going to get this book written. This is February 2020, <laughs> so that oh, everything yeah. goes. So, in... <laughs> thank you, pandemic. Yeah, uh, I, I I keep saying it was a mixed blessing for me because my my schedule just completely clears off. And also, too, you're a blogger as well. There's this temptation, like, oh, I want to I want to get out. You know, I want to spend today writing a blog post about this thing that's in the news. And it's like, when you're writing a book, you have to resist that urge. It's an incredible process. I'll, I'll tell you, and I'm sure you've had the same experience. I've read the thing about a thousand times. In one sense, you're like, I don't even want to look at the thing. And then of course there's this draw and you, it's, but it's very exciting. And I'm, I'm honestly, I've been so thrilled about some of the feedback that I've heard so far. So it's exciting. You should be thrilled. It is a very good book. Right now it's, I think, number one in new releases on, on Amazon, which I'm going to tell you non-authors out there is a very nice place to be. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal, especially this far out from the publishing. You deserve the accolades. It's, it's one of those things where you hear people who like run marathons and they talk to other people who run marathons. And there's a little bit of like respect among them because a lot of people talk about running marathons and never do it because it, it, it is not something that you can just decide on Monday you're going to do. And by Friday, you've gutted your way through it. You really have to like commit to it. Yeah. I just want to honor the fact that you did something substantial here. And I've, I've known you for a while now, and it's not like I didn't think you had it in you, but it's kind of one of those things where, uh, wow. Yeah. Like awesome job, man. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. And you know, I've been, I've been nourished by strong tides. I don't know if I told you this, but so I'm an undergrad and I 
read Jane Jacobs. I read Death and Life. And I'm like, this stuff is great. I love it. And then I kind of was going out and reading more planning stuff and it just wasn't connecting with me. But then I'm I'm sitting, you know, probably in a drive-thru with apologies to Strong Towns listeners. <laughs> and I was listening to uh, your interview on Econ Talk. And and I was like, wow, this is this is the first time since like Jane Jacobs that I've heard an urbanist who I was connecting with. So, you know, all that's the, and that was probably like 2013, 2014. And that was almost a decade ago. I think there's good ideas in here. And it's a lot of ideas that I think Strong Towns uh, readers uh, will connect with. So thank you. That means a lot. I feel like we've influenced each other in those ways. Let, let's talk about the book, Arbitrary Lines. Again, I'm kind of author geeking out, but like there's so many things in this realm to bite off. Uh, you decided to bite off the most boring of all topics, <laughs> uh, zoning. You didn't write a boring book. It's not a boring book. If, if you don't know anything about zoning, you will get a lot out of this book. If you do know a lot about zoning, you will still get a lot out of this book. What made you focus in on, on zoning as the thing that you wanted to uh, devote your time to? Zoning is having a moment, you know, because when I first started getting interested in zoning, again, almost a decade ago, there was kind of nothing on it. Uh, there's certainly you weren't getting like New York Times editorials on zoning or beautiful Atlantic think pieces about zoning. Certainly, it was not an issue in the 2012 presidential election. Right. And so zoning's kind of having this moment where a lot of people are thinking about it and they're thinking about it through the lens of a lot of issues, housing affordability, equity, racial equity, economic opportunity, sprawl, the environment. And, and zoning intersects with all of those issues that are you know at top of mind for a lot of people. And so I wanted to do two things. The first is I found that a lot of people would talk about zoning and they were saying the right stuff. They were like, yeah, you know, zoning makes it hard to, you know, build a car free city. And, you know, they, they got the high points, but then, you you know, they would say things that signal to me like they don't actually understand what zoning is. Right. So like when Minneapolis abolished single family zoning, you know, there was a lot of great coverage of it, but you would occasionally see an article that was, oh, uh, Minneapolis has banned single family homes. Right. And you're like, well, no. Or another example I'll give you, you know, I'll talk to someone about zoning liberalization and they would say like, well, but come on, like we need building codes. Like you can't, you can't build out, you can't build a building without having it be inspected. And so I'm having these moments where I'm like, oh, a lot of people just don't know what zoning is. And, and I would, I would think to myself, what can I recommend to this person? Literally for, for the longest time, I think I was recommending like zoning for dummies. And you talk about boring there you go. Right. <laughs> so yeah, this is uh, in a sense, filling a void, right? I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to have something that's accessible, but still kind of, you know, I'm holding your hand as we walk into the weeds. Right. And, and I want readers to come away from this feeling very comfortable, like, okay, I know what R1 means or, okay, I know what setbacks are and, and how they, how they work. You know, what, Parking requirements, right? This is another thing where you you people get confused about it. They're like, oh, like you're gonna eliminate parking requirements, but we need parking to be built. And it's like, well, don't worry, the developers will build parking. Uh, <laughs> but all I'm saying is we probably shouldn't force them to do it if a few of them are enlightened strong towns readers and don't want to build it. But so that was the first bit. And then the second bit I wanted to pull together, I think, a lot of these critiques, you know, um, because there are, I think there are different ways of approaching what's gone wrong with the way we plan cities. So I, you know, I pulled together the main, those main four critiques, uh, you know, zoning and housing affordability, zoning and economic opportunity, zoning and, and racial and class-based uh, segregation and uh, zoning and sprawl. I, when I was writing the book, I was struggling to think, you know, critiques to include and not include, right? Because going back and reading some of the old zoning literature from the 70s and 80s, the critiques are like, oh, zoning is causing corruption. And that's like, that's not a critique you hear anymore. 
but when I'm like reading like Segan's book on Houston, that's like what he's like, yeah, if you, of course, if you have discretionary permitting, you're going to get all this corruption because, you know, if I can grease some palms and get my permit or another critique that, you know, I don't fully explore is the property rights issue. You know, people people have certain rights over what they can do. You know, if somebody wants to turn their home into a duplex, right, is it the legitimate role of the government to to stop that? I'm not so sure, <laughs> but I, I try to cover the top line critiques. I thought it was interesting, and I guess I didn't know enough about your background to know the the time that you had spent essentially as a zoner. I called my time in the in the early 2000s as a zoner because I administered zoning regulations. And you do kind of there's there's a certain insider language and a certain vernacular that you start to get comfortable with because it is this weird world. It was almost like because I had read the zoning code and I knew what was in it, I had this elite knowledge of like a medieval priest speaking to people who couldn't read Latin. You know, let me tell you what the Bible says. Talk a little bit about your time. And I say zoner, that's been, that's been my derogatory term for people who just do zoning. You obviously did more than just zoning, but you, there were a period of time where that was what you did, right? Mm. I love that great, great Minnesota Lutheran example, translating <laughs> the Bible, right? Uh, yeah. A little bit of regional flavor. Yeah. So I was a city planner in New York, you know, full-time front lines. Um, so I was, I was probably a pretty like the average person who has the title planner. That's essentially the type of work I was doing, mostly managing applications. Uh, so by that, I mean, people would come to city planning and more often than not, it would be, Hey, I've had my business here. I've been operating my business here for 20 years. Turns out my zoning doesn't actually allow me, so I can't get this alone. Or I can't, you know, I can't transfer the property. Literally, one of the projects I worked on was this guy who's like a doctor, long established in the community, was running a medical lab in the back, didn't even realize that he needed a C2 overlay. He had a C1 overlay. And so technically the lab was illegal. And I guess he was refinancing or transferring the property to his son who was going to be, you know, continue the family business. It was a lot of stuff like that. And you encounter so many absurd cases like that. And you start to think like, what are we doing here? You know, this is not planning. And I don't think this is what people want land use regulation to do, you know, because this is the, we're, you know, talk about what zoning is and the critiques, but the final section of the book, which I think is maybe the most provocative is what do we want land use planning to do, right? And I think this is something that that you do very effectively at Strong Towns is let's get back to basics. Like, what do we want? Like, what, what kind of cities do we want? What kind of things are we actually worried about? You know, when someone says like, oh, I don't want uh, retail near me, are they really worried about the corner grocery or are they worried about some bar that's going to be noisy or are they worried about a McDonald's that's going to have a drive through and generate a bunch of traffic? Zoning tends to collapse those things and says like, okay, those are all commercial uses. Wherever one's allowed, they're all allowed. So of course you naturally get very, very, very restrictive rules. But one of the things I want to you know push for in the book, and I do this toward the end is let's refocus on, on, the actual impacts that bother people, because everyone—I think everyone agrees—we need some form of regulation for that. Um, you know, in a small town, neighbors will hammer it out themselves, but you need rules for stuff like that. Right. I don't think this is an unfair question, especially given all the research you've done. You steel man zoning a little bit in the book, but I want you to actually steel man zoning. I want you to make the best case for zoning that you can, as if we were alive in in 1916 when it all started. Right. Because it's, we live in a different place today in a different world, and I think we can, we can talk about the good and the bad. But I think it's important to recognize, like, what were people genuinely, there were a lot of ungenuine things, but what were the genuine, like, okay, I'm trying to do good for the world. 
what were we trying to do in 1916 that we could have said was was a, a, a good thing for society as a whole? Zoning aspires to do, I think, two things when, you know, appreciated in a positive light, right? The first is separate incompatible uses, right? So, you know, everyone can agree. You don't need, you don't want to have a factory next to a single family home, right? So, you know, there's certain uses that we can just definitively say these need to be kept separate. And there's a health and safety reason to keep these things separate. So that's the first. I advocate that, especially now, we we could be focusing on the you know actual impacts that we can measure. But the the easiest and most straightforward way to do that is to just set up these use categories and just separate them, right? That's the first thing that zoning tries to do. And the second thing is coordinating growth with infrastructure. This is classic Strongtown stuff here, right? You know, to the extent that local governments can, you want to encourage growth in places where you already have infrastructure in the ground and you know, encourage growth where you have excess capacity, which is many American downtowns. And you want to disencourage this sort of exurban development or sprawl development that's going to require a whole bunch of extra infrastructure. That's, I think, the steel man for zoning is to the extent that that zoning tries to do these things, right? I think there was there was a reason why some of these policies spread. And I think a, a more basic thing is there, you know, people want to have a say in what their community looks like. You know, that's a perfectly understandable and perfectly understandable universal human impulse, right? People have this idea of, I have, you know, the community is my home, the neighborhood is my home. And that's a, you know, that's an impulse that encourages people to improve where they live. You know, of course, as we can talk about, sometimes I think it, it manifests itself in dysfunctional ways, but that's kind of the steel man case. Yeah. As I was reading the the opening part of your book and getting a little bit of the history, it occurred to me, and I actually wrote this down in my notes, it's like all the worst ideas in human history have like similar things. This is my, this is me, not you, but I'm going to say this and then let you react to it. Like all the worst ideas have similar things. They have progressive ideals, right? Like we're, we're going to fix things and make everything better. They've got some big top-down government way of making this happen. They graft onto and kind of co-opt a private sector like corporate profit motive or something like that as like a mechanism to do it. And then they lean into efficiency and have a sense of like uh, enabling a certain amount of bad human instinct at the end of the day. It feels like zoning had in in the early 1900s when we did this, like all of those things coming together. Is that a, is that a fair statement or if I missed something or, or exaggerated something? No, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, zoning starts in the early 1900s, but it really, you know, we don't get what you would recognize as a modern zoning code until the 40s, 50s, right? You know, you look at the 1916 New York City zoning code, and it's very rudimentary. It's literally like height limits and some setbacks and very, very, very limited use segregation and stuff like that. Of course, it gets much stricter over time. But by the 40s and 50s, you really start to get these modern codes that say, okay, we're going to list out every conceivable use. And we're going to specify exactly what every single building is going to look like, where everything is going to go. And it's exactly to your point. It's this higher modernist project. It's this idea of let's just get the smart people in the room and we can write a plan and comprehensively plan everything about uh, a city in our community. And, you know, this is where I almost go back to basics, right? Like cities are spontaneous orders, right? There are these things that just by definition, one mind can't fully comprehend and certainly not plan out, right? I mean, this is the, uh, the, the Hayek quote, right? I'm not going to butcher it, but men think they can plan, but they don't even understand. You know, to a certain extent, that's, you know, that's a deeper critique of zoning, right? That like on one level, of course, sure, there are certain extreme cases of uses that are incompatible, but then there are all these cases in between that are much more ambiguous, like that corner grocery or maybe that first duplex on a street that's all single family homes, right? 
then, you know, things start getting a lot blurrier. And I also think another thing that goes wrong with zoning, and I think it's it's much more central to zoning, you know, I think in planning, there's a planning school narrative of zoning, right? Which is cities were growing and there were factories opening up on cul-de-sacs and, you know, the progressive reformers came in and, um, you know, saved us with zoning. And if you actually look at the origins of like the New York City zoning ordinance or the Berkeley, I talk a lot about the Berkeley ordinance, which is much more, has much more in common with the modern ordinance. They're not talking about those things, right? Or in, in the case of Berkeley, right, they will say like, we got to keep industry out of neighborhoods. And then you actually read and you're like, what industry were they concerned about? And it's like, oh, Chinese lunch. Chinese industries, right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, or in uh, the New York City case, right? So the Fifth Avenue Association is the main interest group that advocates for zoning in, in New York. And, and you, read their, you read their materials and they say, hey, industry is moving like close to the Fifth Avenue posh shopping district. And you think, oh, okay, like, is, you know, is there like smoke belching out of smokestacks, you know, what's going on? And then they say, well, yeah, the, the poor Jewish girls who work at the factory on their lunch breaks come and like harass our, our Anglo uh, elite shoppers, right? <laughs> and you're like, okay, I mean, yeah, we need to regulate externalities, but I don't know that those are the types of externalities that the government should be involved in, in regulating. And, and a lot of it comes down to that. It comes down to, you know, what type of person is allowed to live and be where? It's a beautiful thing. If you go back and read Euclid v. Ambler, read the district court decision by uh, Judge Westenheiber, he cuts right to the chase. He's like, you know, this is an attempt to put cities in a straitjacket and to segregate cities, you know, based on on people's wealth. And of course, you know, this is 19, this is 1920, so he's not going to point out race, but of course that has serious racial implications. This is sort of, I think, where zoning goes wrong. It's this, it's and that this, district opinion got overturned. Right. That's right. Right. Yeah. That was the, that was the one that the Supreme Court rejected then said, no, you, you've got that wrong. Well, and of course, that's the, the Euclid is the famous case, the infamous case, too, where, where Justice Sutherland uh, describes apartments as pests. Right. Parasites. You know, the, I think unsavory, unsavory assumptions and unsavory impulses come into this. And, you know, I think when I look around, I think that's, this is something that I think is actually a deep failure of U.S. cities is you don't have a maybe traditional mixed income neighborhoods like historically you did. And and I think that's so uh, destructive for building, you know, for building a country. You need to have people of all different stations mixing together. And that's the type of neighborhood that my grandparents grew up in in Louisville. And you, you, it just sounds like such a foreign world now. Right. I heard Andres Duani describe this once. He talked about how uh, this would have been back in like 04, 05. He said, it's as if people who can afford $100,000 houses or people who can afford $200,000 houses would be offended by being next to people who can merely afford a $100,000 house, right? Lo and behold, if they had to somehow mix with people who could afford $300,000 houses, you know, and, and that's the bifurcation that, you know, starts with that. We don't want the rendering plant next to the single family home. Uh, well, we don't want the middle-class house next to the slightly upper middle-class house, right? What are we doing to ourselves? I want to read a, a brief quote because I actually felt like this was such a powerful uh, statement. Zoning is not a good institution gone bad. Zoning is a mechanism of exclusion designed to inflate property values, slow the pace of new development, segregate cities by race and class, and enshrine the detached single family house as the exclusive urban ideal. And it always has been. That packs a lot into one statement. And, and it seems to me like 
the, the response that most people would have to that quote is to say, well, I, I don't like zoning then, right? Because it, it feels like everybody, regardless of if you start from a left on place on the political spectrum, a right place on the political spectrum, uh, you have an affinity for top down, you have an affinity for bottom up, whatever it is, you should find common cause in disliking zoning. Yet it seems like the one thing that we all <laughs> want to cling to and, and tinker with. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'll say two things on that. So, you know, I think uh, if you read like uh, Babcock, right, uh, the zoning game, one of his, you know, one of the classic lines from that from that book is, uh, you know, everybody hates zoning except for the people. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great line. It's essentially the opposite of what I'm trying to say with that line. <laughs> There's this myth, right, that zoning is this really popular thing. In the book, I talk a little bit about Houston, which is the only major American city that actually put zoning to a vote and rejected it three times. And if you look at like referenda to adopt zoning, uh, zoning frequently didn't pass. People, you know, people were like, you know, they're cracking open the codes as they're written. And they're like, I, I'm this, I don't like this. I don't like this. And of course, in the Houston context, they're not exactly coming out, you know, in the 1960s saying like racial justice arguments, <laughs> but they're, but they're concerned about property rights, for example, and that's perfectly valid. Or they're concerned about, for example, it's funny in the, in the 1993 referendum, overwhelmingly Hispanic and black Houstonians voted against zoning. You know, if you read the materials from the time, these arguments were being made like, hey, this is going to be used to, you know, segregate our city even further. It's going to be used to exclude low-income people from certain areas. And the elite consensus at the time was like, oh, you're just being duped. The property rights people are just duping you and tricking you. And it's funny, like 30 years down the line, and you're like, well, no, like this is actually very well established that that's this is what a lot of zoning codes do. I would push back a little bit that that I think on this assumption that's trickled into the planning world that that oh yeah zoning is super popular. I think I think most people actually probably don't have an opinion on it, right? And they don't even know it exists, right? I it's funny I was talking to my dad, you know, my dad's going to retire here shortly and so I've been, you know, what's what's your plan, dad? What are you going to do all day? I don't want you, you know, there's all this data on like, you know, when you retire and you yeah, have a yeah. job. Don't tell me he's going to join the planning commission. <laughs> no, it's it's a beautiful <laughs> thing. He was he was telling me he was like, "Well, I kind of just want to like smoke meat." and sell smoked meat. And I was like, you mean like all day? And he's like, yeah, like, I don't know. I figured I'd just set up in the backyard and uh, just smoke meat and sell it. I mean, this is where you, there's a legitimate land use issue. Like, no, dad, sorry. We, we live in a subdivision. You can't like be smoking meat all day, every day. But also I was like, you know, the zoning is not going to allow you to be like commercially sell like meat in this neighborhood. And he's like, he's like, what do you mean? What? Like he, and, and we, I had to kind of explain like, oh, well, you, you're in an, we're in an R1 zoning district and you know, all these rules. And and, you know, this is, uh, I like to think he's a smart guy, but, you know, a lot of people just don't think about zoning and, and they don't interact with it. And I think that actually when you start to talk to people like, hey, this is what your zoning code does. I think they have kind of a normal reaction of like, oh, well, no, I I, I think it's that's silly that you're required to build parking or, oh, that's that, that, you know, I have this conversation a thousand times. Why are there no more corner groceries? There's this beautiful little neighborhood downtown. There's two or three neighborhoods downtown and they have corner groceries and it's so nice. And it's like, well, because it's literally illegal to do that. When people, I think, start to understand what these codes are doing, I think they have much more serious questions and concerns. You make the case in the book that a lot of people react to zoning as a defensive measure, protect my property values, keep the Jewish girls on their break away from my place so that my property values don't go down. And there's a lot of horrible things that go into that mindset. But even if we looked at it in a genuine way, 
um, and said, well, let, let's let's take the best argument there. There is a sense that zoning is or can be a defensive measure against decline. We have our, our neighborhood the way we like it. We don't want things that are not going to be compatible with our neighborhood. Protect my property value, protect my investment. You also point out, and I think you point out really compelling in a really compelling way that zoning actually degrades neighborhood wealth. It actually prevents neighborhoods from becoming wealthier and in a sense atrophies our development pattern in a way that stagnates places and keeps them from becoming wealthier. This seems like it's a, you know, a typical like uh, almost game theory collective action problem where there's a there's a competing interest of the whole versus a competing interest of the individual. How do you reconcile these things or how should we think these things through? Because I can see in a, in a narrow sense, I can see the argument that says, if you start to change my neighborhood, the, the things that I value, maybe monetarily, maybe otherwise, are going to be diminished. But there's this equally compelling argument that says the neighborhood change is actually what's going to make the neighborhood more valuable and, 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 and have these positive uh, financial effects. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, that's a great question. That's why I was looking forward to this conversation. I knew you're going to have a lot of good insights. So I want to say maybe two points on this because I think there's two questions there. So I think that's exactly right. The people thought of zoning as solving a kind of like prisoner's dilemma, right? You had a block of people and maybe they were all like, yeah, you know, our personal preference is that this, let's say this remains townhouses. We don't want an apartment building popping up in the middle. But of course, you know, as land values go up, uh, there's going to be a stronger and stronger incentive for one person to defect, right? To, to sell to a developer and build the apartment building. And so I think you're exactly right that, that that's what zoning was, you know, in part trying to do is to come in and, and say in people, places where people did have these preferences uh, to write that into law. I'm not totally unsympathetic to that. I'm not the type of, of urbanist who is, is shaming people who want to live in a single family home in a cul-de-sac. I don't think it should be mandatory, but I think absolutely, if, if that's what you want and you're willing to pay the cost for that, uh, I'm all for it. The question, and I think I think this is actually similar to an argument that you make about infrastructure, is if you have those preferences, whose job is it to accommodate that, right? So, you know, in Houston, for example, Houston doesn't completely go without land use regulations. Uh, but the way most of those land use regulations come from people having to actually voluntarily opt into them. So you have to get your neighbors together and actually sign a deed restriction. Uh, they're voluntary and in the case of Houston, they're, they're, the, there's a little bit of public enforcement. But if you want to live on that block with a, of all single family homes, more power to you. Bring your neighbors together and form an agreement and solve that prisoner's dilemma in a voluntary way where you, you know, cover the cost. I think it's, it's inappropriate. And then it kind of spirals out of control to say, well, the government should enforce these preferences for us, right? We, we, want, we want this. So the government should come in and enforce our, our preferences for this block being single family homes or this block being this, that, and the other. And, you know, I actually make the case in the book that part of moving to a post-zoning city is support people when they want to do stuff like that. So, you you know, I think this is could, could be a legitimate role of planners to say, hey, if you guys want to adopt, voluntarily adopt and privately enforce a set of rules that apply to your community, uh, to your block, that's fine. And we'll help you do it and we'll help you work through it. But we're not going to have a, a large local government bureaucracy that's, that's, that's blocking maybe uh, an apartment building from being built on your block. The idea that in order for neighborhoods to actually build wealth and become wealthier places, we have to accept a certain level of evolution, a certain level of change, right? 
Yeah, that's that's great. And so, you know, I, I'm in the California context, this is another conversation I have all the time. People say, I don't want my community to change. Like I want my community to say same. And so they execute that preference by not allowing anything to be built or not allowing the built form of their community to change. But if you don't allow the built form of the community to change over time, the demographic profile of your community is going to change, right? So you go these maybe Los Angeles suburbs and they look like they did when they were built in the 1960s, but there are no children. It's all retirees and empty nesters. The suburb is actually in population decline because they're not building new housing typologies like townhouses that actually serve young families or maybe condos that will accommodate more young couples. Or they're not allowing for maybe those old tired strip malls to be turned into something like more walkable town centers. And so they, you know, people have a preference for keeping things the same. But if you want to keep things the same, uh, in an ironic sense, you actually have to let things change, right? If you want your community to stay healthy and to not fall into stagnation and decline, you have to allow for some change and some growth. If you look at the places that, for example, stay middle class, because this is something that I think a lot of people are concerned about, right? I don't want, I don't want my neighborhood to become super wealthy enclaves, right? Even though in a lot of cases that's already happened. But if you want that, you have to allow for new housing typologies to be built, and you have to become comfortable with that change and appreciate that that's what a healthy community looks like. A healthy community doesn't look like it, it did 50 years ago, right? And 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 change is difficult, and we can do things to uh, minimize the cost of change. But I think to take this attitude of we're just going to try to keep everything the same, I think it's unhealthy. Yeah. You have a chapter called Apartheid by a Different Name. I think you're sensitive, too, to the idea that it's intellectually kind of lazy sometimes to run around calling everything racist it starts to not matter anymore because, you know, if everything is racist, nothing is racist. I know you make this case and I agree with it that, you know, there are certainly racial intent that is illegitimate intent behind a lot of zoning. And whether there's the intent there or not, the outcomes in many ways create a lot of disparities that break down around racial lines, around class lines. Can you, can you talk just a little bit about that? You make the argument very well, and you make it in a way that I think people who don't want to don't want to reconcile their own desire to protect their neighborhood and their quality of life and however they perceive their place through zoning is actually accessible to them in a way that won't feel like you're you're you know trying to shame them into uh, doing something uh, against their own interests, right? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that, that that I agree with everything said there. If you have the power to control what gets built where, you have the you have the power to control who gets to live where, right? If you can if you can decide in this part of town, we're not going to allow any apartments. Or if you can decide in this part of town, you're not going to be able to build a home unless you have a half acre of land. That very directly translates into the type of person that's allowed to live there. Most explicitly, you're raising housing costs and you're pricing housing above what a certain person can afford. And then in the U.S. context, of course, where there's significant racial disparities in income, that has very straightforward and obvious racial implications. Not to spend too much time in this conversation talking about early zoning, but if you look at early zoning, I mean, that was fairly explicitly what a lot of these suburbs were doing. Like, hey, let's incorporate and, you know, let's further fragment the metropolis. Let's incorporate our community, adopt zoning, set a half acre minimum lot size. We're good to go. Ban apartments. Um, Very explicitly to try to keep out certain types of people. And what bugs me, I think today, and I, I, I highlight this is, you know, you'll go into very progressive communities and there'll be the little sign that says, hate has no home here. And right. <laughs> you know, all, all are welcome here. And then right next to it, there'll be a sign that says, uh, you know, stop the tower on Main and 4th. 
the people don't appreciate the contradiction that, you know, by blocking that maybe more affordable form of housing to be built, you're entrenching the types of segregation that I think many progressives, if you ask them, would would vociferously oppose. And I would say, too, you know, I think even conservatives, right? I, I would say if you ask conservatives, of course they don't, you know, they're not going to say, yeah, I want to live in a neighborhood where everyone is this income or higher, you know, if they're assuming they're a decent person. Uh, but then you, you look at the zoning codes that are on the books, and that's what you're getting, right? And so, you know, I argue, I actually think this is much more central to to zoning than I think a lot of planners want to admit. Certainly, the you know, the sanitized AICP uh, history of of zoning. And to their credit, of course, they're getting better about all that stuff. But yeah, I, I feel like they're getting better in a superficial way, right? It's like, ooh, that was really bad. Uh, those were bad people, but we're good people now, mm-hmm. right? And I, I kind of feel like we're we're using the same tools, not really appreciating how they've been wielded, right? Yeah, that's a really great point. It's almost like the uh, the sort of naive, you know, monarchist. Well, well, the problem, yeah, we just need a good dictator, obviously. Like, that's the problem. Uh, and it's like one of the arguments that I try to make in the book is there are certain systems that will lend themselves to misuse and abuse. And there are certain systems that will even corrupt participants, even if you're a good person going into a system like this. And and I think that's, that's actually part of my bigger case for, I think, why we need to move beyond zoning, because I don't think it's an accident that zoning ended up like this in the U.S. context. And there are certain broader incentives and social forces that we're probably always going to make it like this. And, you know, that's why I think not casually, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make the case for let's, let's hit the reset button on landings planning. There's an argument for zoning uh, that comes from the, the private sector and comes from uh, traditionally, I, I've heard from Republican like uh, leaders, conservative uh, leaders who are, are kind of big business leaders. And that is that standardization leads to efficiency, which leads to better market outcomes. Uh, if I know that I'm going to start a McDonald's franchise and I know that C2 zoning across this whole district will accommodate McDonald's, I can look at a map and I can see exactly where my McDonald's can go. It's likewise, if I'm building apartments or single family homes, now I can allocate capital from from Wall Street efficiently through a market economy system down to get things built at the local level. Um React to that because I, I I do think that that's that is true to some degree. I want to hear what you would interpret that argument in in what way you would react to that argument. I mean, that was certainly something that I think Herbert Hoover was thinking, right? So Herbert Hoover was the Secretary of Commerce who convenes the you know the commission that writes the Standard Zoning Enabling Act. You know, he was very much thinking of it in those terms of like we want to have a national home building industry. What do we need to do? And that's why you get all this other stuff on housing finance. A lot of, you know, the modern housing finance system is being built with that purpose in mind. And that was, I think, originally a really key selling point of zoning. You know, the idea was we've got all these different sets of rules. Let's just have one simple set of rules that make it very clear. This is what you can and can't do on your property pretty flexible rules. And it's hard to, it's hard to argue with the, with some of those early zoning codes, right? Very, very simple, straightforward stuff. Right. And very focused on, you know, actual impacts, like stuff like, okay, let's like make, let's have the the setbacks of all the homes on the street be consistent. I actually find that original vision very attractive, but I actually think zoning is, is now worked in the opposite direction where, yeah, on one level, if you kind of know a C2 zone is a C2 zone is a C2 zone, but also this is a, and this was what made the first part of the book so hard is zoning now just varies dramatically. 
I was having this conversation with the planner um, and, you know, I was saying, I, I really couldn't confidently uh, tell you uh, what you can and can't build on a property other than maybe in New York where, you know, I spent. Can I tell you something? We had someone come to us and say, I'm working on a national zoning map where I am getting every zone and everything. And I'm creating a national map of zoning districts so we can see exactly what's out there. And my answer to them was, you have no idea what zoning is then. Like, like you, uh, that, that's the most absurd, stupid thing I've ever heard. Why are you doing this? You obviously don't know what zoning is because there is no, there's, there's no compatibility between a C2 in Benton County, Minnesota that has, you know, 80 acre minimum lot sizes because it's a largely ag place. And what a C2 is, uh, you know, 60 miles up the road in Minneapolis. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those are right next to each other. And, you know, I would, I, I would argue, I have a chapter where I about Japanese zoning. I think zoning systems that are a little bit more functional are nas national districts are defined, right? So the way it works in, in, in other countries will be the, the zoning districts are defined by the federal government and then local governments can map them. But it, it, it at least gets you that benefit of like, okay, this is, a, this is an R5. I know exactly what I can build an R5. That's not true in the modern context, right? And so zoning varies dramatically. That's the first piece of it. The rules on the book vary dramatically. But then also, too, there's so much discretion that we've added into the system. So, so much of what you can and can't build comes down to, you know, can you convince the local council member, right? We've backed into almost this like thing that zoning was supposed to solve where, you know, the average lot in LA, you know, yeah, I could tell you the zoning, but I have no idea what could actually feasibly be built on that lot because it's it's returned to being a political question. And it adds a lot of chaos and unpredictability into the system. And, you know, now if you operate... Uh, I think it actually limits the scope of the market, right? So if I'm a developer in, let's say, Lexington, I can't just go over to Louisville and crack open their zoning code and say, oh, okay, this is the same thing as Lexington. I have to, I'll have to hire a local architect who is well-versed in that zoning code. I might have to hire a local attorney who can you know, grease the right palms and get me my permits. And so we've created these little islands where you actually don't really know what you can and can't build. And I actually think it limits the scope of the market. And I think it's 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 partly, you know, it's, it's I think it's a huge constraint on on housing development at scale that we don't really have consistent rules. It's, it varies pretty dramatically from city to city. Of course, some things kind of look the same, like suburban R1 zones broadly look the same. The, you, you raise minimum lot sizes, which are going to vary a lot. But yeah, like the the, the standard 2.5 Cape Cod style home. Yeah, OK, that's generally going to be the same. But beyond that, like commercial zoning districts completely different city to city, uh, multifamily zoning districts, the parameters, the setbacks, the heights, that's all going to vary city to city. Uh, you know, and, and, and circle back. I, I had somebody ask me, they were like, well, what, you know, what, what are the rules for this lot in LA? And it's funny because I'm a, I'm a trained planner. You know, I worked as a planner, got my SCP. And I was like, honestly, it would probably take me two or three hours digging through the code to figure <laughs> out what's allowed. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh -huh. What hope does an average person have right. in a system like that? Yeah. You know, I think to that end, you wind up with fewer players in the system because of it. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And you get less creativity too. You, you get fewer people trying out novel things. Right. So, you know, cottage courts, right. They're maybe allowed in you know, like a fraction of a percent of urban land in America, but that might be something the developer might try. Uh, and, and this is, I think an important thing is, is you need that for healthy markets, people running experiments, experiments that fail, okay, I built a fourplex on this block. I couldn't rent out one of the units. I'm not going to do that again. Lesson learned. Uh, that's how you iteratively build, I think, healthy cities. It was bizarre to me to learn 
because in Minnesota, we do have some state statutes. There's some things that we do well here in regards to land use permitting. Uh, one of them is that we do require uh, all decisions to be made within 60 days. And then there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a thing where you could do to extend it to 120 days, but after 120 days, like you have to render a decision. So you have to have a coherent enough process to actually do that. It was shocking to me to go to, for example, California and learn of zoning, zoning permits that have been in the, in the process for years. When you have a, a process like that, what you have said is that only people with large amounts of capital can develop land. And that's a very different city than most of us desire to live in, right? Well, and that's a great point. And I'm always hyping your blog post on the Minneapolis or the Minnesota uh, shot clock. Oh, really? Because <laughs> uh, it's great. I mean, it, and, and there are, it's, it's subtle details too about how it's designed. But I'm always saying, you know, look at our best neighborhoods, right? I think people have this idea of like, oh, architecture was so much better back in the day and people built with pride and quality back in the day. And to a certain extent, that's true. It's probably survivorship bias. There's some nostalgia, right? Yeah, exactly. But but you look at some of the best neighborhoods in the typical American city and most of the homes were built by some guy and his cousins who probably had no architecture training. Uh, They were probably building with kits that were mailed to them from Sears Roebuck. And it was some guys throwing up, you know, townhouses or duplexes or fourplexes on nights and weekends, right? You're exactly right that this is, you know, it's not all zoning. It's a lot of things, but um, we've made it to where that model doesn't really work. And especially, you know, in cases with really complicated zoning, you got to have that attorney uh, to get you your permit. You got to have your on-staff planner. Great for me as a planner. I don't know that it's very good for cities though. If, if a guy has to hire a planning consultant to get a duplex built. I think we need rules that are simple, easy to understand and flexible and allow people to run experiments like that without having to have a whole legal team on staff. Your, your book is a critique of zoning. You also have a lot of things that you suggest we do. So it, it is a book, if people get into it, that they will not be led down this dark uh, path and then, and then abandoned. You actually say, there's a way out of this. Here's what we can do. One of the baby steps you suggest is to eliminate single family zoning or the restriction that only the only thing that can be built in this zone is a single family home. I, I want to ask you about the mechanism of that. Obviously, I support that outcome. I think that that would be a great outcome. And maybe you can explain a little bit what, what that would be. But I've been a little bit leery of the mechanism that we've used because you take California, for example, the, you know, the idea that we would do this statewide, every, all, one size fits all, everybody do this in, in all instances. And we can step back and whether it's Prop 13 or whether it's a whole like collection of things that California has done statewide, uh, they become entrenched in, in law and kind of become the thing that then a generation from now we have to work around this kind of lazy legislation to, to solve today's problems. It, it seems to me like cities should embrace this naturally, but they're not. What is the role of the state? What is the role of the federal government? What is the role of kind of top-down imposition to do this thing that that really, I would argue, we should all be voluntarily doing uh, on our own? Can you talk a little bit about that that tension? Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a, there's a real tension there. I would say, of course, the best case scenario is local governments see, you know, what's in the best interest of our community in the long term. It's probably not having rules like single family zoning or parking mandates and cities reform them on their own. 
And you are seeing a lot of that. A lot of cities are doing this, you know, on their own because they realize it's, you know, it's not this horrible thing that needs to be imposed on you by the state. It's actually good. If you eliminate parking requirements, your community is going to be better, right? Like we have this, like, take your medicine approach to it or like same with housing, right? There's this take your medicine approach to housing of like, yeah, we, we know it's horrible that some townhouses have to be built, but, but please bear with us. It's going to be fun. I would say no. I, it's good to live in a community where you have a lot of different housing types and young families are able to get on the path to homeownership. I hear like California in particular, and you're in California now, so I'm and they're kind of the avatar of this mess, right? There's been this long discussion of everybody needs to take their share of the really crappy housing. That's been like the, the dialogue there in California. So like everybody has to have your share of the growth. Everybody has to have your share of the poor people. Everybody has to have your share of the crappy apartment complexes. And, and to me, that's such the wrong framing of this, but it's the framing that I've heard. And, and to me, the whole discussion about abolishing single family zoning has kind of come out of that really messed up way of looking at uh, what what we're asking people to do or what we're encouraging people to do. Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a few things going on. I think first there's a cultural project here, right, of, you know, showing to people an alternative vision of what their communities could look like, right? I was having this conversation with Salim Firth, uh, my colleague, and, you know, what's the most sustainable way to sort of reform cities and make them better is to have people buy in trying to do right if people get it and you know that's why i'm always pointing when i'm when i'm talking to people i point to a great neighborhood in their city that could not be built today you know so for example in my hometown i'll point to a neighborhood like kenwick in lexington and say you know isn't it nice that you have a corner grocery isn't it nice that there are like a few apartment buildings mixed in uh to this community like this is this is one of the best neighborhoods in your city and it's illegal to build today and when you put it in those terms it clicks and another thing you get with urbanists they're like Oh, you know, we we have to we have to legalize density because the earth's going to like turn into a fireball. And yeah, ap- apartments are hor- apartments are horrible and and busy storefronts are terrible, but we got to do it cuz it's so it's is death, change. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no, these things are inherently nice, right? It's you want having a community where people are not like struggling to make rent or having a community where you can walk to a coffee shop is nice. It's not a like sad compromise that you just have to accept. Um but so, I mean, back to your original question, I would say for the state level, you know, of course, the dream that local governments do these reforms on their own at the state level, I think it's reasonable to say, hey, we're going to take some of the most commonly abused tools out of the toolbox. Right. So here in California, we're coming very close to eliminating minimum parking requirements within a half mile of transit. Um, we can have debates on on other zoning stuff, but there's no good case for having parking requirements within a half mile of transit. Of course, there's no good case for parking requirements anywhere, but especially within a half mile of transit. And I think it's reasonable for for state governments to say, okay, that's a tool that is only ever going to be abused. We're just going to take it out of the toolbox. Sorry. Or, or creating frameworks for stuff like ADUs. I think that's actually been very effective in California saying we're going to have a baseline set of rules to allow ADUs everywhere. And then that exactly to our last conversation, that gets you economies of scale. Right now, if you pull up to an intersection in Los Angeles, you see it a few signs. You see, I buy ugly houses and free ADU <laughs> consultation. And I'm like, that's a reform that worked, right? You have a huge market of people struggling to build these things. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. A lot of times I hear people who don't like zoning point to Houston and they say, you know, look at Houston. It's It's got it figured out or it's, you know, Houston, blah, 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 whatever. I look at Houston 
And I see the same city I see every place else, right? Like I, I don't see the outcome that I get is A, not appealing and B, no different than Phoenix, which has zoning. You know, it's like, it's the same place. Is this, a, is this an argument against zoning? Like why bother? You're just going to get the same place? Or is this an argument for zoning that like, you know, oh, we should have done it better. Like I, I, I don't know how to interpret this zoning argument you know, a la Houston and really say like a compelling, this outcome is different because we did or did not do something. Right. It's a tough case for me. Right. Especially as an urbanist, because I, you know, something I'm, I, I'm careful to point out in the book is Houston made every other planning mistake yeah. in <laughs> a century uh, in some cases, like turned up to 11, but I argue they didn't make one mistake. Right. And I think that's really, really valuable and important. And this is a tough thing whenever you talk about cities. And I'm sure you deal with this too, right? You'll say like, oh, you know, um, uh, Brainerd did this did this great thing. And then some some person on Twitter will come at you. Oh, but, but Brainerd still has all these horrible, like Brainerd has all these vacant lots downtown. And you're like, okay, but I, they did one thing good. And I'm going to like highlight that. And you know, that's, that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to make the case with Houston is, yeah, a lot of things went wrong with Houston to the extent that they didn't adopt zoning, a lot of interesting things are able to happen. They, they, can, they can build denser, right? They're, they're throwing up apartment buildings uh, with ground floor retail that are turning into thriving mixed-use streets in areas that were formerly industrial, in areas where in a zone city, it would have been a huge ordeal to rezone that. And there would have been raucous public hearings. And it's just able to happen in Houston or in, in huge parts of Houston. Uh, you know, old traditional 5,000 square foot ranch style homes are being turned into what are essentially townhouse cottage courts, right? Again, that can just happen and it keeps affordable and, and, and it's helped Houston to become one of the most diverse cities in the country. Um, and, and, you know, of course, this is very important that the conversation is stopped there. And that's why I talk about in the last chapter is I think another thing that, that zoning has done to cities is planners are so focused on micromanaging the parking requirements of strip malls or, you know, the planting strips of strip malls. Uh, they're so focused on keeping fourplexes out of cul-de-sacs that they've lost focus of what planners really need to be doing. Planners need to be stewards of the public realm. Planners need to be planning out street grids that are interconnected and that are fiscally sustainable. They need to be planning out parks so that everyone has access to parks. They need to be thinking through, okay, you know, how do we tactfully uh, subsidize income-restricted housing. So we, you know, people at the margins, uh, you know, have access to decent housing that isn't segregated. Those are the important jobs that planners need to be doing. And I actually think, you know, once once all, once our, once all of our planning capacity is no longer being wasted, um, you know, micromanaging zoning codes and, and stuff like this and processing variances, we have a lot of, so many people go into planning and they're smart and they're compassionate people. And I think their talents get wasted doing a lot of this stuff, but we need to refocus it on the stuff that really builds great cities, which is stewards of the public realm. I was going to ask you what the role of the zoner is post zoning. And I think you've just laid it out perfectly. We, we have a public realm to, to help, to assist. That's beautiful. Nolan, this has been fantastic. I just going to, again, congratulate you and say, you know, for everybody listening, the book is called Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. If you go order it right now, you will be one of the first people to get it because it's not even out yet. Uh, but it will, you know, get, get go to your local bookstore, go to wherever you get books and uh, they can get a copy. It's by Island Press, right? 
has put this out, a great publisher. So they're helping out. I think you changed your Twitter profile picture, but you had my favorite one for a long time with you with the, the mustache and the T-square. I like this dude has got it all going on. Um, I think you changed that, right? Like you, you, you did something else. I got, I got professional headshots for the book. I'm yeah, sorry, that's Chuck. what you did. I, <laughs> I will, I will accept it. I remember you when dot, 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 I, what's the best place for people to follow you, to get a hold of you and, and what's going to happen now when this book comes out for you, are you going to go talk places? Are you going to, uh, you know, do something? Yeah. Well, of course, follow me on Twitter. My, my Twitter handle is M and gray, uh, G R A Y. Yeah, I'm hopefully going to be doing a few events. So we have events lined up in D.C., New York, Philly, and Princeton. Of course, I'll be doing an event in L.A. and San Francisco. So I'm going to be trying to hop around a little bit. And and if if you know if you're if you have a group that that wants me to come out and talk and 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 you want to uh, explain to me how I completely messed it up, I'm happy to do that too. But uh, so I'll be doing a little bit of Johnny Appleseed work for the next few months. Beautiful. It's it's desperately needed. And I hope people read the book and I hope people uh, take away uh, how they can make their city stronger, better, more adaptable and, and, and build great places. Nolan, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Hey, thanks. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.